Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 204. Yes, you are definitely in the right place if you are an interior design professional who has figured out for yourself that it is not easy to do this job. No, it is not. Today, I am dealing with, I don't know, I think this is like the seventh tradesperson who has COVID. And thankfully, every single one of them has been fine. And I'm very hopeful that this person will be fine too, more than fine. This particular person has worked with me since 1991 when I launched my business. He's like family at this point. And we've had to postpone a couple of installations that were coming up. It feels a lot like 2020 so far in 2021. I'm trying to remain optimistic, but man, oh man, oh man, there have to be easier ways to make a living, right? And yet we love it. Well, if I'm honest, I love it because it's satisfying and it's profitable. If you removed either one of those key ingredients, I wouldn't love it nearly as much. Interestingly, one of the things that helped me transform my business and turn it around is being desperate, desperately unhappy, desperately embarrassed that I was Canadian fired too many times, desperately sad that clients didn't come back to me over and over again, and desperately broke year after year, because back when I started my business, I didn't take a regular salary, a biweekly or a monthly salary. I waited to the end of the year. And then if there was money left over, I took some, the operative word being if. And I'm tough. So I endured this kind of low-grade misery and hard work for no reward for a long time. But finally, I got sick of it. And I was really close to quitting it all, but I had this nagging feeling. I just desperately wanted to figure it out. I felt so frustrated that I couldn't figure out how to make this business work. Desperation turned out to be a gift because it motivated me to do the hard work that I desperately, (laughs) there's that word again, that I desperately needed to do in order to turn my business around. I wasn't going to do it until I really hit bottom. And rock bottom is where you stop digging. In other words, you don't have to keep digging. You could believe me when I tell you there's a better way. Now, my bottom included no profits, a rotating door of staff, just constantly having to hire and hire and hire and hire. It included getting fired from clients who were lovely human beings. It was pretty low. I'm not going to lie. Maybe you haven't hit bottom yet. Maybe you just started and you think, oh, I'm just going to work harder. Or here's my favorite. I'm just going to work smarter. Good luck with that. I wanted to do some research and find out where that expression came from, you know, that rock bottom is where you stop digging. And I was able to find, I was able to find a reference to Will Rogers. Now, I know the name Will Rogers because there's a state park near me in California where we go hiking, Will Rogers State Park. 
But I had this mixed up notion. He was also a cowboy. And I thought, well, no, wasn't there someone named Roy Rogers? Well, anyway, it turns out that Will Rogers was actually an actor when he was younger. He was in the Ziegfeld Follies and he did some Westerns, but he became a humorist and a writer. And he had a lot of famous expressions, including this one. If you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. I found myself in a hole, but I just kept digging and digging and digging for so many reasons. Thankfully, the guest that we have on the podcast today stopped digging very early, really figured out he needed help to run a more efficient, more effective business, and today is thriving. His name is John Stein, and you're going to love him. He talks about the merit of planning. He talks about the satisfaction of incremental growth and creating a culture that thrives and doesn't require him to be at the center of every single decision or task that gets done. So lots to learn in this episode, including Will Rogers is not the same thing as Roy Rogers, but they both had something to do with cowboys. Will Rogers was a pretty smart guy, judging by some of the quotes he left behind. This one, the quickest way to double your money is to fold it and put it back in your pocket. Doesn't that just sound like it'd be like the most hilarious thing you could ever say in the 1800s? I love that. And then this one, there are two theories to arguing with women, neither work. See? Smart guy. Thanks for being here. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest today. When John Stein founded Cure, he wanted to create a company culture that was underscored by the mission, do well by doing good, both in regards to his business and in terms of planet Earth. Cure works closely with architects and designers to create supportive, human-driven environments to make our spaces more comfortable. And since they've been in business since 2002, of course, they've had to endure the ups and downs of the last couple of decades. And John says they've been successful of that through maintaining and creating a culture that inspires creativity, preparedness, and doing good. If you've been in business a couple of decades, then you know in 2008, we were all doing great. By the end of that year and into 2009, there was a big crash. And John says that's when desperation became his thing. His business plunged 75% in a single month and his back was up against the wall. He had to lay off most of his employees and he had a sales manager who he worked closely with to inch his way out and back from the brink. The desperation he felt inspired his newfound culture of planning And he says it's become a bedrock of his business model. Today, it comes naturally for John to think about the what ifs and have a plan in place, a plan for how you're going to handle things if there's another economic downturn. It's the kind of thinking that has kept enough capital in Kire in his business to be able to withstand the shocks we're feeling today during the pandemic. John says it was a real turning point for him when he realized his team didn't always need him to be involved in every single decision, every single act. And learning that and moving aside, allowing other people to shine, helped him create a self-sustaining culture. 
along the way, he's learned so many things about being a good leader. For one thing, he used to be what he referred to as the friendly owner, not just a colleague, but actually trying to be a friend. And he realized that in order for his company to grow, he had to elevate out of that role, create a little separation and allow a natural company culture to grow without him at the center. He also said he hopes he can bust the myth with this podcast that entrepreneurship happens fast. Occasionally, there are some lucky unicorns, that's true, but for most of us, we have to drill down, we have to have multiple failures under our belt, and then we have to make some difficult changes and appreciate incremental growth. So hitting rock bottom while uncomfortable is often a necessary part of any recovery process, whether you're recovering from substance abuse or the harmful effects of a work life that lacks balance, reward, and satisfaction. Sometimes desperation turns out to be a gift because it can motivate you to make the most important changes in your business. I'm so glad you're here, and now I'm going to check in with two of my favorite people. Cheryl Horn, everybody knows, Director of Operations at Business of Design, and Janine Laudenbach, Programming Specialist. Well, hello, hello. How are you guys? Well, it's nice to have Janine on, on with us because she's sort of taken the spotlight this week. She is. Janine, what are we talking about at BOD Live? Well, this week we are going to be talking about our design for living and how each of us can create the design for living that will work for our business and for our life. It's a future vision, right? And it's a blueprint yes. for where you want to be in your life. And it's funny because I we got a couple of emails over the weekend like we do, and they mostly go to Cheryl uh, and the rest of the team, but I see some from time to time. And the couple that I saw had to do with what is BOD Live, what goes on, what kind of secret society is this? The best way I think to describe it, and I don't know how you guys feel about this, but would you, wouldn't you say it's almost like the podcast comes to life? Like we have like these super engaging conversations yeah, it's, it's been really great. It's like you get to listen to the podcast, but you actually get to talk back to it. <laughs> and it's such a great way to connect with other members and really talk about what we've learned and sometimes even just how we're handling all the changes to how we do business with everything that's going on in the world. Well, and it's, I think um, if you've been to one of the retreats, you're going to be really excited that Janine is leading this one because I would say across the board uh, on our surveys afterwards, the one request that we always get is more one-on-one -on -one coaching with Janine. So it's, it's our live events that Janine usually manages. So you sort of have to uh, attend one of those in order to get time with Janine, but that'll be exciting for this week. How many people want more time with Janine? Do I need to worry about this, Janine? <laughs> I do don't I need, think so. Do Kimberly. I need to therapy to deal with the fact that they want more Janine and less me? I don't think it means less you. I think if they want to have some time with me, I'm great with that, but you'll be there too, Kimberly. <laughs> well, we'll be putting out some of the like retreat energy this week. That's what Janine definitely brings to the table. Exactly. And I'll wear my I'll wear my t-shirt. How's that? <laughs> my business of design t-shirt. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good. Okay. So this week's BOD Live is creating your future self, really being able to step into a bigger version 
of yourself so you can see your potential. And then in February, I just uh, had a meeting this morning, as a matter of fact, with Christopher Kennedy from Palm Springs. So our BOD Live in February will be a special Palm Springs edition. Yeah, so that's exciting. So we've got big plans with that and we will keep everyone posted on those dates. But for this week, uh, if you want to join us for BOD Live, all you have to do is be a member of Business of Design and log into your member account and there'll be a little button to click Wednesday at 1 p.m. EST. You can join us all live. Yay! We'll see you then. How about everybody just just go, yay! 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 You guys then. <laughs> oh my God, we're so. Weird. We have to do it one more time. Okay. Okay, okay. One, two, three, go! Yay! Yay! Nope. <laughs> I did it myself. <laughs> okay, somebody else count okay, down. I think I'm delayed. Static. Okay, ready? <laughs> Yay! Yay. <laughs> <laughs> we can't do one, two, three. No. Oh my we God. Can't. We're such losers. Never mind. Yeah, I'm going to totally losers, not okay. edit this. Everyone's going to hear what pathetic losers <laughs> oh we gosh. are. That's how that's going to go. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Keeping it real with business of design. Yes, we are not actors. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> All right, uh, you guys. Bye. Okay. Yay. Okay, bye. Yay. 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 <laughs> Welcome to the Business of Design podcast with Kimberly Selden. Business of Design is the world's best business training for interior design professionals like you. We have the systems, strategies, and protocols you need to consistently satisfy clients, increase profitability, and run your projects like a boss. Unlike traditional coaching, BOD is a fast track to immediate results. Don't try to do this alone. Join today and you'll have access to hundreds of targeted training modules, plus member perks like BOD Live events, member-only podcasts, preferred pricing, and the support of an engaged community of peers. We all know design matters. At Business of Design, we think designers matter too. In this episode, John mentions a book that he really loved, which helped him wrap his head around all the financial information you need to know as a business owner. It's called Simple Numbers, Straight Talk, Big Profits. I want you to know I ordered it immediately. I will read it and I will have a discussion about it on an upcoming podcast. If it's good, I'll reach out to the author and see if he can make himself available to speak at a BOD Live as well, because we've introduced BOD Live Book Club. So that's a lot of fun. See what you're missing out on if you're not a member. Oh, so many good things. Hey, John, how are you doing today? Great, Kimberly. Where? Nice to meet you. Where are you? I know you said you have a surfboard nearby, so I'm wondering uh, which, which waves are yours? Uh, I live in San Diego. Okay. All right. Good. I'm uh, currently in Palm Springs. My uh, not so bad. Not so bad. Yeah. My uh, place in Santa Monica is getting renovated. So we, we were trying to think of someplace we could go and kind of pandemic hide ourselves away. That seemed like a good idea. And this, this came up. But San Diego would be great, too. Yeah. No, no. Kind of split the difference there. And let me uh, plug my uh, sister and brother-in-law's coffee shop in Santa Monica, Bluey's, if you haven't been. Oh, yes, we have. Really? Oh, really? That's your sister's? Yeah, it's my sister-in-law. It's my wife's sister, yeah. And, and Very husband. cool. Very yes, cool. Okay, oh, go Blueys. Yeah, I, yeah. It's, uh, I, it's going to be interesting to see who's been able to survive all of this. I, I'm super happy I'm not in the restaurant industry right now. For sure, for sure. 
But that doesn't mean we haven't had in the interior design industry our own share of ups and downs. And the first thing I want us to talk about, how desperation can turn into the fuel that, you know, ignites a new round of creativity and a new round of innovation. So tell me, first of all, how did you ever become desperate? I mean, if rock bottom is where you stop digging, that's what they say, right? If that's where you stop digging, then what was your moment of rock bottom? I mean, you know, it was really 2008, 2009, you know, I mean, obviously I, I, well, well, not obviously, but I started the company in 2002 kind of as just like, let's see what happens. And so it wasn't such a, a desperation moment to start the company. It was like, Hey, this is a cool idea. I was, I was kind of almost gifted my first product. And I said, this is really interesting. Let's see if we can take this somewhere. And it, it did go somewhere. And by 2008, we were a, a thriving concern. Um, but of course, you know, as, as I think most people know, the world fell off a cliff. You know, we had our best month ever at the time in November of 2008. The, the business was booming. Everything, you know, we touched turned to gold and it was just great. This is easy. And then all of a sudden, crash. And then February of 2009 was probably our worst month since founding the company. And... Uh, you know, that's desperation. How are we going to pay rent? How are we going to survive? And, and, you know, at that time you just, you get more creative, you know, I mean, it, you know, when, when orders are coming in, it's all easy, you know, you, you, there's no pressure, but when you're, you know, in the trench back to back with, you know, the people you work with and, and just saying, Oh, what are we going to do? How are we going to pay rent tomorrow? You know, you get real creative and, and that's, you know, where you find new products and you, you know, I was, um, much less, you know, on the outside looking in, you know, now I'm trying to watch myself as I work, but then you're just like head down in the moment. How do we pay next month's rent? And, you know, that really inspired, you know, a, a lot of things I do now, you know, planning, uh, conserving, you know, and, and so, uh, you know, it, it, it was just, yeah, that's it. That, that pressure tends to crystallize things quite a bit. I did a very poor job of setting you up too. Let's tell everybody what Curé does and what you started with in 2002 then. Sure. So Curé is the Japanese word for beautiful. It also means clean, has multiple meanings, like pure, truthful. And, you know, I was uh, working in marketing and a friend of mine brought me our first product, uh, a product we then later renamed Curé Board, but it was made from sorghum straw. It was a wood type panel, a decorative wood panel, basically, made from sorghum straw. And so sorghum is a grass grown around the world for food. And the waste material was usually burned or thrown away. Uh, and uh, a Japanese company had developed a, a beautiful looking surfacing material, um, which a friend of mine showed me. And I loved the beauty of it. And I loved that it was an eco-friendly design material. It really aligned with my kind of beliefs. And um, that I was hoping that I could help inspire better behaviors than others or more eco-friendly behaviors. I don't want to judge that they're better or not, but at least more sustainable behaviors from, you know, through beauty because eco or, you know, green had this kind of connotation of sacrifice, right? You couldn't do what you wanted and be green at the same time. Here was a way everybody wants to design beautifully, to design beautifully, but at the same time go green. So from there, we just kept expanding products uh, adding things that were similar, you know, wheat boards, hemp boards, um, reclaimed wood, coconut shell mosaic tiles. 
and just, you know, started developing a rep and distributor network and just found great people who were aligned with what we wanted to do and rode the, the wave, pardon the pun, of, of green design because, you know, in 2002, three, four, five, six, green design was just beginning to kind of blossom. Uh, people weren't really thinking about it in the same way before then. And, and, you know, there was that idea, it's expensive, it's sacrifice. And along with our products, a variety of other companies that are still around today, you know, Paperstone, for example, um, you know, that, that take recycled content and make great materials that are, you know, as durable, as, as usable, as beautiful, as price conscious as anything in the market. And I think green, that's when green learned it, to compete, you know, not just on tree hugging or whale saving, that it has to be, you know, has to meet the basics of, of product need to be successful. And watching that maturing process was really interesting. And watching the acceptance of green materials by the design community uh, was also really amazing to see that what was considered fringe green design, you know, then is now mainstream, is written into building code. And that was really exciting to watch some of that birth happen. So your initial panels that you produced, were those simply practical and decorative or did they also have acoustic properties? Because that was my first interaction with Kire. They were practical and decorative really. But what happened is, I mean, thank you for the segue. Um, in around 2000, probably 10, 11, 12, I started hearing from designers, hey, do you have anything that has acoustic properties? Because I just did, you know, new open plan restaurant, new open plan office, new open plan. I mean, really the whole design philosophy of the, you know, 2000, 2000s was open plan blank, right? I mean, bathrooms and with open plan and high ceilings and, and open spaces comes acoustic difficulty. You know, the sleek design, bouncing, you know, sound bouncing off walls, off ceilings, large volumes, all cause a lot of, acoustic, uh, you know, unforeseen acoustic problems, I think. At that time, I had another little piece of kismet. I found a product coming out of Australia and because acoustic also meant sacrifice. It wasn't really thought of, except for a couple exceptions, as a design element. It was just a necessary evil. You had to put, you know, brown fabric wrap panels or, you know, not the most beautiful products. Egg cartons, right? They look like egg, egg cartons. Egg cartons was what people thought of. You know, it wasn't a design element. It was a, how do we fix the problem? Uh, and so I happened upon Echo Panel, uh, which came out of Australia, which is a, uh, a an acoustic panel product and tile set of tiles as well, made from recycled plastic bottles or recycled PET. And it had 20 or so colors and could be made into sculptural shapes and designs. And it was kind of the same thing. Designers went, wait, I can have beauty and acoustics, kind of like they said, I can have beauty and green. And it was uh, just, again, an even faster product launch than my initial one, um, because it was just fitting a need that the market had. Everyone I was talking to was like, yep, I've got a client calling me and saying they love the space, but it's it sounds terrible. What can we do that doesn't ruin the space, that doesn't change the whole design ethic we just did? And an echo panel enabled that. You could have a plain white wall that now had acoustic properties, or you could do, you know, artwork or uh, or you know, again, lots of different design elements 
uh, with, with acoustic properties. And, and so that was a real new growth area for me. I mean, I didn't know that much about acoustics, but my learning curve has matched kind of the design community as well, because many designers didn't really know how to fix acoustics, that you can tune a room. Everyone just thought, well, if a room sounds bad, that's just the way it is. But, you know, over the last seven, eight years, people have learned to tune rooms, to fix rooms that, you know, it, it can be changed. And not so, just commercial rooms you're talking about. No, now, yeah, right, no, right? no, not, not just, I mean, we specialize in commercial rooms. Right. But it's funny, funny enough, I grew up in an acoustically challenging home. Um, you know, it was a beautiful home, but with a lot of the big open spaces, a lot of sleek walls, um, you know, hard surfaces that, that make up com problem areas for commercial spaces as well. I do want to put a plug in for every mother of a child with ADHD, which I was one. Had I known about the acoustic wall panels when I had my young one at home bouncing off the walls, I would have had a piece of acoustic panel that looked like art on every single wall of his bedroom. And, you know, in the last two or three years, I started thinking about acoustics for just private family homes. And we recently installed some acoustic panels uh, for a family basement because they have two sets of twins. And I'm like, I don't even know how you could think when you're down here, when the kids are playing, it's so loud. So I do think there's another revenue stream there for you, um, but uh, time, time will tell, right? Secrets. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And, but you know, yeah, you run into the same issues of understanding, you know, what do I do? How do I do it? Um, because acoustics means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Does it mean sound from the freeway outside? Does it mean room to room transmission? Does it mean, you know, the, the sound quality within a space? So that's a lot of learning that has, has to happen. Right, exactly. So, of course, so it's uh, 2002 to 2009, really early 2009. You were like a lot of interior design firms. We felt like we had a license to print money. Like we just, there was nothing we could do that didn't turn to gold, as you said. And I have to admit myself to a little bit of arrogance settling in. Oh, I really, I got this. I'm so on fire. I got this. And then, of course, the great uh, reckoning happens early, late 2008, early 2009, and it changes everything. So you found yourself in a, in a situation where you were even worried about how to pay the rent. So how did you turn that around? Because I'm asking it now, particularly because I do think there are people who are going to come out of this pandemic who have closed up their design business temporarily or just weren't in the sweet spot when this all went down. So they didn't have the clients to carry them through to 2021, 2022. So what can we glean from that moment where you just feel like you're at your lowest point? How can we tap into what you tapped into? If there's a little luck to it, right? You know, if you happen to be in the right industry or like if you happen to be in the electric bike industry a year ago, you know, you might've been struggling along, but all of a sudden it's, you know, Katie bar the door and you know how many bikes can I get? So there's an element of a little bit of luck. I mean, for example, you know, 2009 and and COVID hit were both are both economic downturns, but they hit very differently, right? You know, um, and so they're having different effects. So there's some things you know you can't control, right. but it's it's mindset, it's control what you can control. And you know, I mean, now you know, now that I've, I've had to accept that I'm quote unquote entrepreneur, which is a you know tremendously I don't know. It's an overused word, but a well-used word now, you know, that you have to be able to withstand those shocks and say, okay, I mean, you know, um, what are the brutal truths, as I think they say, in good to great, you know, and take all the emotion and story out of it because, 
you're just going to have to pick yourself up and and do what you've got to do to get to the next step. And and you know what the difference for me between 2009 and and now is I wasn't really planning then. You know, my planning was what happens tomorrow. And now, you know, I, I've really tried to put systems in place to think, you know, three years ahead and do a lot of what if planning and stockpile reserves and and be ready to say what happens if we do, uh, you know, experience a, a, an issue. So th- that's what, you know, I've had to um, try to get off the roller coaster a little bit, although, you know, every day is a roller coaster of success and, and failure and challenges and, and, and resolutions. But it's 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 try to get yourself off the roller coaster, take what comes, and and then just say, okay, how are we going to get out of this? How are we going to fix this problem? So I think what I hear you saying is you're trying to get proactive versus reactive. So, it, I mean, if there's if there was an economic downturn in 2008, 2009, and there was, and there's going to be an economic downturn in 2020, 2021, it's then there's probably going to be another one, 2030, 2031, something yeah, like that, no, right? I mean, so what are we going to do to be in the best position possible to ride the, ride out the storm? I think I've heard that out of every 10 years, two years are bad. And, you know, if you look at cycles, it's, it's not untrue. It's obviously not easy to predict which years are going to be bad. But, you know, knowing that it's coming at some point, you know, you have to just be planning. I mean, we had a rainy day fund. Who knew it was going to thunder and lightning and storm and tornado? But hey, at least we had a rainy day fund, right? And, you know, we, that's, that's all you can do is, is try to run a stable business. Uh, you know, I've also had been able to find the luxury to, you know, run the business at a little bigger scale. So I, as the owner, make time to do these things. You know, I've, I've got an incredible team that when I let them be, do more, you know, and that frees me to do what I'm supposed to do, which is just think, look at economic cycles and say, what might happen? You know, what's what's happening with the return to work with with people working from home? What is you know, what's our market going to look like? And so that's my job. They look to me to make sure I'm, I'm looking a couple steps ahead. And so that's how you, I think, get through a, a potential downturn. No, it's going to come, you know. Be ready for it, like just like you wear a seatbelt in a car. You know, you're you hope you're never going to crash, but one day you might crash. And so, if you've got you know the, the kind of quote unquote seatbelts in the car in the car, seatbelts in the company, you'll do better than if you're just like, oh, I hope hope something good happens. Tell me about the seatbelts. We've got an audience who is looking for specific actionable advice. So you mentioned a rainy day fund. What is that? How much do you need to put in it? How do you start that? And then what are the other seat belts specifically that you need to make sure you have in place so you're prepared? Sure. I mean, um, you know, first of all, financial planning. You know, we have uh, an incredible CFO and a multi-layer financial group who's, you know, doing bookkeeping, controlling our, our funds, looking at budgets, looking at cash flow, uh, you know, looking at our you know, income and planning. And so that's the first one, right? First of all, making sure that you're not spending more than you take in. As rudimentary as it sounds, one thing that helped me track that very thing is taking a monthly salary rather than what I did previously, which was wait until the end of the year and then just wait and see if there was any money left over or not. It didn't always go well. 
if you're just doing doing it from like one pocket to another, you're never going to be able to make plans. You're never going to be able to kind of get things under control. And once you really say, okay, let's be realistic about what's coming in and you know what we've got to pay every month, then you can start to say, okay, what's really necessary? And then I had to do a lot of learning about, you know, I'm a non-financial guy, really. I mean, and so I, I read a great book called Simple Numbers, Straight Talk, Big Profits, which is a one of the best financial books for an entrepreneur or an owner who might be a little less than, you know, financially or accounting savvy. And it just talks about really basic concepts, you know, how to read your profit and loss statement, your balance sheet, how to, you know, pay yourself, how to set a salary cap, right? If you, you know, know what your, you know, your, 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 you charge for stuff minus your cost, then minus all your other, you know, kind of fixed expenses of, of facilities, et cetera. Well, that's, and then, you know, your known desired profit, well, that's what's left for salaries. And if you then have to try to match up what you want to do with what you've got, you know, and, and if, if you get that kind of fiscal discipline in place, you can start to get to a place where you can say, okay, I better save X percent. And that's different for every business. I forget what they say. It's two months of, of cash reserves, you know, two months of bills, basically, you know, but we tried to save even more than that and got lucky that we did or made our own luck that we did. That to me is, you know, is one of the biggest seatbelts is, you know, having a financial discipline system. Uh, and then, you know, um, planning has been the other thing, um, you know, uh, the I was a very typical American entrepreneur, kind of uh, hopping from one idea to the next. And, you know, I worked with this uh, a Japanese company who was very much the opposite. The Japanese make a plan and stay with the plan almost to a fault. And we had a lot of conflict. But I've really come around to the wisdom of, of setting a plan, making a plan, and then checking against your plan. Yeah, like these are all the things you can do if you're not spending all of your time putting out fires, right? It's all the stuff we teach at Business of Design for sure. Get outside the business, right? Leave for a day or two days even to do your annual planning. Not answer any phone calls, not answer any emails and just visualize where do I want to be or where do we want to be or need to be? Uh, what are the biggest challenges to the company? And, and that's been the biggest change for me is going from working in the business to on the business, you know, very classic founder owner issues. Um, you know, I was answering customer service emails two, three years ago. I mean, and people were like, stop it. And I was like, no, I just really like to. And they're like, you're not, you know, and, and I wasn't working on the highest value thing I could bring to the company. That wasn't bringing me the, the you know, what I'm supposed to do to get out of the way of my team and, and give them the, the things they need to be really successful. And so, you know, one of the biggest questions is what am I supposed to do all day as the owner? And I've had to really learn that compared to what I used to do, which was everything, right? And, you know, in doing everything, you kind of do nothing. That's a good segue to the second topic I wanted to talk about, which is, you know, when you start out as a young entrepreneur, being the boss doesn't always come easy. And there are things I had to learn along the way. So what are some of those things you've had to learn about stepping into the role of the boss? Yeah, I mean, that's a, its, own, it, its own thing, you know, accepting it, understanding that that's who you are and that that's your role. Um, you know, I had to learn a lot about it, do a lot of reading, look at others who I, I saw, oh, they seem to be doing it well. well. What do they do? Right. You know, and you have to learn to, to wear those clothes, you know, of, of that role comfortably. Um, 
you know, which isn't easy. I mean, you can deal with a lot of like imposter syndrome and do I belong here? And, you know, one of the things I, I, I that, that came to me through one of the programs I was taking was this idea of not why me, you know, this victim idea, you know, why me? I, I, there's no way I could do this to why not me, right? Why not me? Somebody's the boss. Look at all these other bosses. Look at all these other successful people. They do it. I put my pants on one leg at a time. And so why not me? Why not Kira? Why could we not be a le- an industry leading thing? You know, it's really easy to talk yourself out of business. Uh, there's no way we can compete in this market, you know, and, and I think entrepreneurship involves some willful blindness or, you know, uh, when you're starting out, I, I don't know if I would tell myself to start this business now, or I would do it in a different way. Oh, you got to raise all the money. You know, I was young and stupid and putting samples in, in, in the bathrooms at the AIA trade show, you know, and hoping someone would pick them up, you know, and that's not a way to tell someone to start a business, but um, you know, that idea that, you know, when the chips are down, say, why not, me why not us we can be successful you know we're doing it just as as well as anybody else you know we're smart people we're you know we're, we're not going to give up and and you know we're going to think our way through this what about your team um were there challenges with separating yourself from being one of the guys i found myself like just one of my team like just on an equal everybody's you know it's a democracy everybody's the same and then one day i had to say no actually i'm the employer i have to i have to answer the hard questions i have to decide if someone gets a bonus or gets an extra week off i got to separate myself a little bit from being one of the gang did you have that sure. moment it, it's really hard i mean i'm you know an extremely you know social animal uh, I, I want to be liked. Um, but yeah, you have to make hard decisions about people, about plans, about programs, about, you know, all the different things that come along. And you have to, as best you can, remove emotion. And if you've got tremendous personal relationships, now, that's not to say you don't care about your people. I care tremendously. I mean, the work that, that everybody who works at Cure puts in and how much they care about the company and each other is, is beyond inspiring. But yeah, the hard questions come to me and I have to just say, okay, what's best for the, you know, for the company, for the greater good, while taking into account, you know, the the individuals, you know, who sacrifice for for us, for me, who put their time in here. So yeah, I, I, you know, I've had to change my mindset about, you know, being one of the gang and, and, and I think people respect it, you know, as, as, as best they, they can. I try to really share that. I'm not afraid to say that. I hope that everyone on the, uh, you know, in our, our company is listening and says, okay, here's what John has to face on a daily basis. And plenty of them say, I don't want to do what you do, you know, and, and I also don't want to do, you know, or can't do what they do. I mean, now that's what's really important is that so many people here do things I can't do or do them so much better than me, that that's how we're successful. So yeah, it's, it's hard. You can't be one of the gang um, like, you know, you used to and you know, they didn't even let me win at the go-karts when we've had a company <laughs> outing. I really was would have appreciated everybody just getting behind me like, you know, that would have been nice. But Like no, a monarchy. <laughs> they didn't do that. Yeah, yeah, they didn't do that. So, No, I suspect you were a target. John, thank you so much. We like to end every episode with something we call design intervention. Just it doesn't have to be related to our topic at all. Just great advice you think everybody could use. Um, so, yeah, best piece of business advice I got you know, it was probably slow as fast. Um, I was, I am, was an am impatient and 
getting me to slow down and say, you can't do it all at once. You can't move all the checkers across the board at the same time. You've got to do them one at a time in the right order, um, you know, has been really important um, to, 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 to getting me to be more effective. Uh, you know, that impatience of just do it all, do it now, gets nothing done and nothing done well. Um, but setting, you know, incremental goals and, and you know, biting, eating the apple one bite at a time uh, has, has gotten me further faster than doing it all at once really fast. So that's been a tremendous piece of business advice. Love it. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. It's been great. My pleasure. Thank you for being part of the Business of Design community and supporting BOD's mission to improve the industry one design business at a time. It's time for you to take the next step and join Business of Design. Like thousands of design professionals in 50 countries around the world, you'll find the systems, strategies, and protocols you need to dramatically improve your business and transform your life. What are you waiting for? Start today 